with issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 229 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I've got a real taste for the pain of wasabi peas. Ooh, wasabi pea, that's quite good at this time of year, it does sort of uh, unblock the sinuses. Yeah, sometimes if, if it's really powerful, mm. I have to do this <laughs> <laughs> to, get, to get some of the pain out of my nose. If only you could give them to two-year-olds. <laughs> solved a lot of my problems in the last Please few days. Don't. Very bunged up. I think that's a call to the NSPCC. I'm not really going to give my daughter wasabi peas. Don't don't worry. I'm Hannah Dunleavy. Would anybody like a wicker Christmas tree skirt? Um, Talk me through it. Is this for our Christmas disco, the annual standard issue Christmas <laughs> disco? Not that sort of skirt. Oh. Yep, made out of wicker. It arrived at my house the other day. Erroneously, I had never ordered one. Obs. And when I rang and said, I seem to have been delivered something I didn't order, they said, oh, yeah, that's a mistake. Keep it. <laughs> you know, I guess it's because they cost £20 and it's probably cheaper to just lose £20 than it is to pay someone to come and collect it from me. But I don't want it. It's absolutely huge. It's in a massive box under my desk, taking up space. Would it, would it fit an Edward Woodward in it? Uh, no, because it's got a hole in the bottom. I can't eat. see. I thought I could make a basket. At least it could become a cat basket, but it doesn't have a hole in the bottom because it it, it does, does have, have a, hole, does in have a hole in the bottom. It doesn't have a bottom in the bottom. No use for the annual man burning event. Uh, no, the standard I, issue annual man burning, which ironically disco. we do at Christmas. Yeah, I asked my mum if she wanted it, and she said no. Nah. And I thought, well, then no one wants it. <laughs> Nobody wants this. Perhaps this is how. Dunelm are planning to get rid of all of their wicker Christmas tree skirts just to just pick names out of... Oh, we sent it by <laughs> <Yeah>. accident. <laughs> exactly that. I think I might go and drop it in a charity shop. Genuinely, if anybody would like this beauty, anyone listening, and they live in Cambridge, tap me up on Twitter. You're more than welcome to it. You stick a picture on Patreon. Could you wear it? Just just a question. Could you attach some yeah. braces and wear I it? I mean, I'm thinking, yeah, but I probably wouldn't fit any through any doorways. I want to see it. <laughs> oh, I can't. It's so massive. On. I want to see it on. <laughs> I sent you a photo of it, Thanks. Jen, but it's wedged. It's currently wedged under my desk because I won't be able to get it out. I'm Jen Offord and I've been to a way a sausage fest. Oh no! What a way to hand in your notice, <laughs> Jen. <laughs> I was going to ask if you've been to see Richard Herring's podcast being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no offence to Richard, it's just the only place I've ever been where the queue for the men's toilet was substantially longer than the queue for the women's toilet. Football, alas, um, quite often mm. you do get that. So there's a thing in Harwich once a year where people go and throw sausages on the green. Don't know why, not really sure what that has to do with anything. And then in some of the local pubs you go around, you do sausage tasting and then you vote for your favourite sausage. Have you been off to what watch people... Waste food. Just throw good food on the floor. Good point, Hannah. I hadn't really thought of it like that. But yes, that is exactly what's been happening around these parts. But then they do give away a lot of food afterwards. So that is something. Lyra was introduced to sausages for the first time. She's never eaten them before. At one point, my neighbours did see us outside the pub where it was quite rainy on Saturday. She's in this, like fucking day glow floral like the rain suit thing with these leopard print wellies on stamping her feet going sausages <laughs> <laughs> back in my lads mag days i did have to write a full page on national sausage week 
and got very inventive with alternative words for sausage. What did you come up with? Well, it depended on the sausage, to be honest with you, Jen. But I think like the skanky sausages, which ironically are usually the ones that taste the best, I described as hog nostril pap at one point. Mm. I like sausages. Me too. Lyra too, as well, now it transpires. Big fans of sausages here. They were lovely, had a whale of a time. It's not nature's banana. (laughs) (laughs) Just something to grip onto. (laughs) Nature's banana and stop with those hand signals. Please, someone move this on. (laughs) No, not nature's banana. Is nature's banana code for a penis? No, nature's banana is Is just a banana. banana. Us humans have tried to create something that's like a banana. In what yeah, way? It's quite convenient to eat. Oh, I see. Yeah, okay. Coming up, I chat about what's going on inside all our heads. Or what well, a terrifying don't. thought. This is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. With neuroscientist Professor Sophie Scott, author of a new book, The Brain, 10 Things You Should Know. The referee's a thoroughly nice person, actually. In Journey Off the Blocks, I chat to Leonie Pryor, match official developer at the Rugby Football Union, about getting more women into refereeing. And we hold hands and run very fast in a zigzag towards rated or dated as we watch 1997's Welcome to Sarajevo. But first, budgets, bullies and bloody hell, when will it all end? It's time for the Bush Telegraph, Q-Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where, Father Christmas, if you're listening, I would like a 10-ounce gold bar to use as a paperweight, some bougie free-range manure and an underground cellar. Someone's been looking at the Goop gift guide again, haven't they? Shut up and buy me a personalised soul song. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck is a personalised soul song? (laughs) I think you're being facetious, Jen, because everybody knows a personalised soul song is a 12-minute piano composition inspired by the planetary alignment during our birth. Where'd you find that? On the uh, Goop gift guide again, (laughs) Jen, uh, (laughs) in the ridiculous but awesome section. And yeah. What will that set you back? A mere $225 for a personalised soul song, Jen. Bargain. So this is something that Gwyneth does, is it? Yeah. What for? For, for lols? I don't know. What, I mean, because she needs the money? Cause I think because she's having a lovely time taking the piss out of everyone. I really hope so. I really do. <laughs> because, yeah, $225 for a personalised soul song. I'm not even going to tell you how much the underground seller is. Either you have one or you don't, surely, an underground <laughs> seller. Like, what the fuck? But if you don't, Jen, you can buy one from Goop, because that's certainly the first place I'd go if I was going to do any building work. I'd okay. be like, what would Gwyneth build? I'm going to have to look this up, but please, Mickey, continue. Because, yeah, recession? What depression? The temperature has finally dropped from mad balmy to actual autumn chill and in news I assume will surprise none of our listeners. The latest more in common poll, which takes regular looks at Britain's top issues, shows that 75% of Brits polled are worried about the cost of living crisis. The next closest concern is the state of the NHS, with 38% of Brits quite rightly worried about that as nurses get set to go on strike Mm -hmm. for the first time since, well, ever... The biggest nursing strike in NHS history and the first ever on a national scale is set to take place before Christmas. And as ever with strikes, with the ongoing RMT strike, support them. You know, it's inconvenient, but I support them. Yeah. But fear not, though, anyone who is worried, November's Chancellor and newsreader favourite Jeremy Hunt 
has a new budget <laughs> up his sleeve and due to be announced on Thursday the 17th of November. According to The Guardian, early drafts of the statement include at least £35 billion pounds oh. in cuts. A bit like the last Chancellor and Prime Minister, I'm no economist, but this does feel like it's not going to help those living on the thin end of the wedge. Instead of being raised in line with inflation, as is the norm, it looks likely that benefits will be raised in line with average earnings. But average earnings aren't <laughs> cutting it for huge swathes of the employed population because inflation is currently at a 40-year high of 10.1%. 10.1%. Wow. Also worth noting that corporate profits are at a 70-year high mm. and the average FTSE 100 CEO got a 23% pay boost this year to around £3.9 million, mainly due to jumps in bonuses. Good to have the full picture, isn't mm. it, people? The desirable level of inflation, by the way, is 2%. Fuck. 2%. Not 10.1%, 2%. Fuck. None of this has been made better by the Bank of England's dire forecast last week when it predicted that higher interest rates would push the economy into the longest recession since the 1930s. Ah, the 1930s, also known as the Great Depression. Fun! That sounds fun, doesn't it? That thin end of the wedge is basically going to be so thin it's transparent. Too many people were already struggling and now churches and other community hubs the last line of defence against the cost of living crisis could be forced to close their doors because of spiralling bills and shrinking donations. It's really fucking bleak. So bleak that I'm not dismissing the Telegraph's Jane Schilling suggestion that people struggling with the rocketing price of food should try... Sorry, just let me check my notes. Shooting pheasant. <laughs> of course I am. What the fuck is wrong with these people? Shall we learn how to cook roadkill too, Jane? Hedgehog burgers for all? Free toothpicks as standard? Is there any silver lining, Mick? I mean, I'm hearing you ask this between sky screams and compassionate donations to the Trussell Trust, Banquet, Choose Love, etc. Well, I've really been scanning the sky for that silver lining. And with the possibility of a general election being held in 2024, the Tories, the party of the economy, lest we forget face campaigning to remain in government at the tail end of a prolonged slump. Sitting in the hot seat during an economic crisis burns. So fingers crossed they won't survive. Oh, and it's a fucking crisis that they've made. Oh my God. Do you know my mum was telling me, people have probably heard of such things, but I had not, that there's a community centre here in Harwich which is opening its doors to people as a warm hub. Yeah, somewhere yeah. to go and sit if you literally can't afford to heat your home while you have to be there in the day. So you can go to this place where they, presumably for now, because <laughs> who knows going forward, where they can afford to heat the space. Well, that's the whole point about churches and community centres yeah. having to shut their doors because they can't afford yeah. to pay the bills. And it is, it's it's a warm hub. They quite often have tea and coffee. Yeah. It's a place for people to just sort of get out of the cold. And yeah, they're also in danger of, of shutting. And they quite often give food to children in the holidays and things like yeah. that. It's miserable. It's absolutely miserable. I remember seeing not that long ago an article in The Sun, Mickey, the Why sun. are you reading The Sun, Jen? Well, I wasn't reading The Sun. It came up on my Instagram feed and I was so shocked to see the headline in The Sun of how 
people on low incomes could claim more money from like various things they could do to claim more money and i was like if the fucking sun is telling people mm. how like people on benefits low income families people that have been demonized by the right wing press for uh, my whole life and probably longer than that if they're trying to tell people how mm. to get more money out of the state fucking hell we're in dire straits aren't we because that is not absolutely historically the kind of thing you'd expect to see in a rag like the sun just to reiterate it's not the people the desperate people trying to get here in flimsy boats on the channel that i blame for this jen it's the fucking fat cats and the tories who have created this cycle of austerity for people on the thin end of the wedge yeah it's hideous and i saw this morning that boris johnson has had his like end of end of premiership i get to nominate some people to be yeah. peers one of them's nadine doris oh fucking hell seriously <laughs> and, and then it's just like a bunch of his advisors and toy party donors and blah blah and i'm just like the system's so broken it's so broken you're trying to get those people who you know are fucked they're gone next election they're done for i fucking hope so well, just two weeks since being elected by four people as the 80th <laughs> Prime Minister this year. Rishi Sunak's no more bullshit ticket was looking a bit fucking crumpled this week after a bullying row unfolded around Minister Without Portfolio, Sir Gavin Williamson. That's right, he's a sir. The system is broken. Oh, uh, as you were just saying. Mm -hmm. Details of the accusations against Williamson were revealed by The Times, which published a series of messages sent by the former Education Secretary to then-Chief Whip Wendy Morton. Initially, Williamson is irked by the fact that he wasn't important enough to be invited to the Queen's funeral, but it transpires as the messages and indeed other stories about him emerge that he's just a fucking arsehole. <laughs> Mick, have you read the messages? I have read the messages, Jen, and I agree with your analysis. Well, we 10 out of 10 for Morton's. I'm fine, though, uh, response. I really hope <laughs> yeah. she did it deliberately to piss him off. But in all seriousness, the tone is legit pretty menacing on Williamson's really part. So when further accusations came to light in the following days, they did seem kind of on brand, I have to say. He's definitely committed to the bit. He has. He's accused by another minister of making tacit threats to reveal details of her private life when he was the chief whip and by a senior Ministry of Defence civil servant of instructing colleagues to slit your throats and jump out of the window. Williamson denies bullying civil servants, but not the use of these specific words. I can't work out the maths of denying the bullying but also accepting. Oh, yeah, I did tell them not to... not denying. Yeah. <laughs> I did tell them to do that, but I'm not bullying them. Okay. Lols and bants. It's just locker room chat, Jen. With regards to the messages sent to Morton, Williamson said he regrets getting frustrated with colleagues. Meanwhile, Cabinet Minister Oliver Dowden defended Williamson, who, he said, sent them at a, and I quote, difficult time. Does he mean difficult because his own party had just tanked the economy? Because the Queen had just died? Or because he was at the vets with a poorly dog? I'm guessing he'd accidentally put his underpants on the wrong way around, Jen, and that <laughs> led to some nasty messages. Number 10 said, on behalf of the Prime Minister, whatever that means, that the texts were unacceptable Nonetheless, he does appear to have kept his job doing... I don't know. Making sure he never has a portfolio. <laughs> Just like, oh God, there's a portfolio, I need to get rid of it. I don't understand. 
I would like to say poor Rishi, the rot has started early, but A, I don't feel sorry for him, and B, nope. I guess he might reasonably counter, not as early as it did for Liz Truss. He will at least always have that. I suppose you also kind of reap what you sow when you appoint a twice-sacked minister with findings of formal investigations into his conduct pending, something that you're aware of, to fulfil no particular remit. No, no. What I will say is poor Wendy Morton, who ordinarily I doubt I'd have much time for, but no one deserves to be spoken to like that by their colleagues. Or spoken to like that by anyone. No, I agree, yeah. What a bellend. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when what's bad for the gander is pretty much always fucking deadly for the goose. A new global report based on research by the International Centre for Journalists, that's the ICFJ, and the University of Sheffield, and aptly named The Chilling, has found that we are at crisis point in the level of violence being directed towards women journalists and highlights the link between gender-based digital threats and offline attacks. That journalists get a lot of shit on and offline isn't news, and that female journalists bear the brunt of on and offline violence is sadly no surprise. This groundbreaking report, commissioned by UNESCO, interviewed more than a 1,000 female journalists in 15 countries and found the vast majority of those who took part had suffered from online abuse and threats. It also found that women journalists are at the nexus of misogyny, racism, xenophobia and religious bigotry online and that online violence against women journalists is frequently associated with populist politics and polarising political debates such as, for instance, breakfast here. Breakfast? <laughs> I'd, I'd have much I wish we'd breakfast. had a big, lovely breakfast in 2016 that <laughs> had gone on and on and on. Yeah, I think everyone would have been united in their joy of that, to be honest with you, Jen. Anyway, didn't mean breakfast, such as Brexit here in the UK. Indeed, one of the interviewees for the report was Carol Cadwallader, who exposed how personal data belonging to millions of Facebook users was secretly collected by British consulting firm Cambridge Analytica, largely for political advertising around Brexit. Analysis found that Cadwallader was the target of 10,400 separate instances of obvious abuse between December 2019 and January 2021. Fuck. Yeah, it's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. UNESCO, the ICFJ and the University of Sheffield are hoping the report's findings serve as a wake-up call for UK policymakers and they call for urgent action by UK policymakers to protect lives, livelihoods and press freedom. However... There's always a however, isn't there? Mm. The draft online safety bill, which this would cover, is once again delayed with no known date for when it will return to the House of Commons. More news when, or sadly if, it happens. Hello, Hannah here. I'm joined by neuroscientist, Wellcome Trust Senior Fellow at University College London, author of The Brain, 10 Things You Should Know, and probably the smartest person I know, Professor Sophie Scott. Hello. Hi. (laughs) You're very kind. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm enjoying term starting and all the students are back. It's great. It's sort of starting to feel a bit more normal again. It's So first question, have you ever held a human brain in your hands and what did it feel like? I haven't. There are very strict rules around what you can do with human brain tissue or human body parts in general. A colleague of mine in Cambridge used to have a human brain in a Tupperware. 
box on his desk. <laughs> so I've been around one. And then it turned out that that was illegal and they didn't know how to get rid of it. So it was all a bit traumatic. But human brains are actually, they're not very solid. So in their natural state, they're floating inside your skull in cerebrospinal fluid. And the actual texture of the brain itself is is not solid. You would hold it in your hands. It would start to run through your fingers. It would be like trying to hold a a really watery jelly. And it's held in place as it floats inside your skull by these very, very tough membranes, the meninges. You know, if you watch like Silent Witness and she gets the brain out of the skull and says, oh, there's a bullet hole. You couldn't do that, actually, with a brain. It would start to collapse on you. So a lot of the history of brain science involved actually what they call fixing the brain, trying to make it solid so you could then actually do anatomical investigations of it how interesting television has lied to us yet again yet again (laughs) i actually did know that your brain isn't is floating around because i once was in a car accident and i got concussion without banging my head yeah and they were like it doesn't matter your brain hit your skull and that's what gives you concussion it's actually alarming how much your brain can move inside your skull because it's sitting it's floating inside your skull it's tethered at the bottom by what's called the brainstem, and that's going down into your spine. So that's continuing down into your spinal cord. So that's where there's a sort of fixed point. But it means if you're in a car accident or you get thrown around, your brain can both twist around on the top of your brainstem, not good for anybody, but also it can get knocked back and forward, exactly as you Mm. say. So an impact that doesn't actually involve your head getting struck by anything, but where your head is violently thrown forward or violently back, your brain will sort of bang back to front inside your skull. It's horrible. Inside of the skull is quite a, quite a harsh place because mm. it's not designed for that kind of interaction. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit scary. Oh, yeah, I was fucked for several days. <laughs> Next question. Our understanding of how the human body works is pretty much still in its infancy, if you consider how long we've been here. How new a science is neuroscience? How much do we know and how much is there still left to learn? Oh, there's so much still to learn. So it's actually interesting. If you look at the history of how we've studied bodies, how pretty late on it was when we realised the brain had anything to do with anything. For a long time, the brain was thought to be cooling down the body. And then when people started realising the brain was kind of important, they still focused actually on the fluid that Mm. the brain's floating in because the brain itself is so murky and weird and it deteriorates pretty quickly after you die. So it didn't seem to be easily studied. And it was like like the last 500 years or so is only really when we realised the brain itself was where stuff mattered. And then it was still hard to study it. It took developments in other areas for us to start to get grips on this. So, for example, developments in the study of electricity meant that we started to realise that nerves communicate Mm. using electricity. The development in sort of electrical techniques meant that we started to be able to do electrical investigations of the brain and and sort of ask questions. So there's amazing studies by a guy called Walter Penfield in Canada about 70 years ago where he was looking at the surface of the brain exposed by people who were having surgery prior to epilepsy. And he was very gently stimulating the surface of the brain and finding he could create perceptions in people just by touching the brain with a little electrical current. People heard things or saw things or did things. So you, you're you starting the kind of the development in electrical mm. techniques, let us find that kind of thing out. And then more recently, there have been big developments in terms of how we can look at the brain there are techniques like functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is basically quantum physics. 
that lets us in medicine look at lots of different parts of the body in detail, but it also lets us look at the brain's anatomy, but also what it's up to. And that's really recent. We've only had that since the 90s. For many of the techniques that we have, it's very, very early days. So there's a, there's a great deal that we don't know. We know a lot about how the structure of the brain works, like what brain cells look like. And we know a lot about how they communicate with each other, with electricity and by using neurochemicals to talk to mm. each other. But we have difficulty kind of scaling that up such that you can understand the brain as a system. And that's really difficult, partly because it's so huge. We've got 86 billion brain cells and starting to come up with a model of how those can all talk to each other, particularly as they, they change in their function all the time, because every time you learn something or you do something, you actually change how your brain works a little bit. So it's not even like the brain itself is a fixed thing. Mm. It's always a shifting thing. So that kind of complexity, I think we're still really struggling with. And I think we're also struggling to understand how brains develop. Like we are starting to learn more about it, but actually looking at a baby's brain through to an adult, you're looking at the brain cells, the same brain cells. We don't grow new brain cells. You have the same brain cells all your life. But actually what that process of development looks like in detail, in a way that might let us understand, for example, differences in people based on their experiences, Mm. is really in its infancy. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday who's got a a little one, he's two. He wanted her to put, put his jacket on and she was just doing something else and she turned around and he laid his jacket on the floor and then he lay down underneath it and put his arms into the armholes like that, laying on the floor and stood up and he put it on himself. And she was like, it was just incredible to watch him. And we were like, can you imagine what sort of neurons are firing in his brain yeah. there? He's two and he's working something out on how to do it. Yeah. So I had a CAT scan. Is it a CAT scan? I had a, a brain scan about a couple of months ago to check that I didn't have a brain tumour, which I didn't. Great. Good. So I was slightly terrified in the experience in that it was a nerve-wracking experience but afterwards I really wished I'd been able to actually be on the other side of it and look and see I don't know the little bits of my brain lighting up yeah so in the sort of scan that you had there the the, the, the cat scan that will just be picking up the anatomy of your brain that won't have been changed particularly by your mood now if you did a different kind of scan that was picking up the neurotransmitter systems in your brain you would have seen elements of your mood there Or if you had a scan where we were looking at the different bits of your brain working, you would probably have seen a difference there based on your mood. So it depends on the exact kind of brain scan. So for clinical investigations, they normally, not always, sometimes they're looking for the other things, but they're normally going in and asking questions about anatomy. When they're looking for a tumour, they are just getting a good anatomical scan where they can see if there's anything there. Mm. So you and I, do we have lady brains, Sophie? (laughs) Well, we do. (laughs) in that we're female and our bodies contain brains. But it's interesting, if you go in in detail, there are differences between male brains and female brains, but they're not as enormous as you might expect. Mm. The largest difference is that male brains are... Sorry, the science gets away from you here, do you say? (laughs) Male brains are bigger than female brains. And interestingly, that difference remains after you control for body size. So there's a suggestion that male brains are bigger in a way that's not just because male bodies are totally bigger. Right. Now, if you look inside the brains, what you find is that brains are made up of, well, brain cells are made up of these very, very long cells called axons. And at one end, they have a cell body and then they have these really long projections that go and talk to other brain cells. And they're organised in the brain 
such that the cell bodies form a layer on the surface of the brain and then the long projections all connect to each other sort of underneath that so that you've got like a cake with icing being the cell bodies and then the the structure of the cake is these white matter connections Mm. connecting each other and they look physically different so the cell body layer looks grey and it gets called grey matter and the connections look white because they're coated in a a myelin sheath that is white so they look white and it gets called white and grey matter there is a point to this. If you look in female brains, female brains have a higher proportion of the grey matter compared to the white matter in the male brains. What this means is, I think, that female brains have got the same computational power, the, the, the stuff that's the activity in the brain is happening in the cell bodies. And that's crammed into a smaller space by right. having shorter connections. So you could think of that as a more efficient brain if you... You took the words out of my mouth, Sophie. <laughs> It leaves us with the problem of why would nature bother with larger male brains to start with? Because Mm. they're expensive. A lot of the energy in your body and the oxygen in your body is used up by your brain. About 20% of the oxygen and energy in your body is being used by your brain at any one point in time. So that's costing all of us a lot, but it's costing men slightly more. There's a reason for this. And do you know what? We don't actually know what it is because it doesn't seem to boil down to something very simple like enormous differences in intelligence there aren't enormous differences in intelligence between males and females there are very very tiny ones and to be honest it depends which intelligence test you choose yeah will give you a difference isn't that always the way yeah it's absolutely always the way the jury's still out we just don't know maybe there is some other functional possibility with the possibility there's longer connections we we just don't know but it, it interestingly beyond that if you go down to different brain areas within that because obviously the brain isn't one just a big homogenous mass you don't start finding brain areas that are distinctly different male brains anatomically than female brains bigger different shape unlike the rest of the body so the rest of the body tends to follow a you know roughly two different body types following the kind of biological sex at, at birth you don't see this kind of distinction in the brain structure other than this 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 difference of size that is interesting. So mm. this this kind of links to this. So back in 2020, we had the excellent Dr. Carol Hoven on the podcast to talk about testosterone. So I thought we could talk a bit about its opposite number, estrogen, because much as I enjoyed your book and I learned a lot from it, my ability to actually retain that information <laughs> is currently being hampered by changes in estrogen levels in my body. Am I right? Yes, there's not a huge amount known about this. There is some controversy, but one of the things that oestrogen does in your body, in addition to being a hormone that affects sexual characteristics, is found in males and females, but oestrogen itself also acts as an anti-inflammatory. And that's why when you go through the menopause, women often notice like aches and pains mm. or it's you know more uncomfortable after they've been exercising because that affects in the brain as well. And that does mean that women aren't enjoying the same kind of anti-inflammatory power of the oestrogen in their brain that they were prior to menopause. Interestingly, because in the male brain, where testosterone works in the brain, although males have more testosterone to start with and less oestrogen, testosterone actually gets changed into an oestrogen in the brain. So they they keep the same amount Mm. of anti-inflammatory power in their brain. It's just us that takes a bit of a hit. So I think there's very interesting questions about what that actually does to brain function and to changes following the menopause. That I think it's safe to say we still don't really know enough about. There's just not enough research. We don't even know why females go through the menopause, let alone what the effects are on the brain. Because we are one of the only 
creatures alive that mm. does go through the menopause, right? This is really freaky. All other creatures on Earth, if they're alive, they continue breeding as, or can continue breeding as, of course, male humans can. They might decline a bit, but they continue being able to with age. There's only in mammals, humans, killer whales, and short-finned pilot whales that go through the menopause. And actually, we know more about the killer whales than we do about humans. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we should all hang out more, shouldn't we? But it's, um, <laughs> in the killer whales, we know that the pods tend to be led by a dominant female. She'll quite often be like a grandmother. And she will be the repository for a lot of knowledge because these are long-lived animals and they are very selective about their feeding and their feeding can be affected by human-based activity, climate change. So the older females seem to know more about where food can be found and remember things that have changed things in the past and where things move to. So they seem to be very good for the pod in that respect. And also a male killer whale will fare better, live longer if his mum's still around. <laughs> so there's something in, in the killer whales, there seems to be value in having females, older females, yeah. significantly older females. Can you imagine? <laughs> who know more and who are not encumbered by having to look after their own infants. And that seems to be one of the things that's pushed the menopause to happen in killer whales. We don't know enough about short fin pilot whales, but I think it's interesting to hypothesize about that in humans. There may be a similar kind of mechanism. There is a real value in having older females around who are not encumbered with their own childcare requirements, which we would be if we were great, if we were blue whales, you'd yeah. be living to your nineties and you'd be having babies the whole time. Yeah, that's mad, isn't it? That's the reality of that's the, that's what happens to elephants. That's the reality of older of all other mammals. Yeah. I'm still I'm still kind of blown away that there's a society that exists that values what older women have to say. If you think about the fact that on the whole, because, this, sorry, this is a little bit complicated, but we have two different immune systems. You've got one which is based on your keeping germs and stuff out of you, and that's your skin and, you know, and you also have an immune system that responds to invaders into your body and generates an immune response mm. that can, you know, your white blood cells can attack and kill invaders and things like that. Both of those systems work better in human females than human males because they're X chromosome linked. So it just happens to be that females have two X chromosomes and males have one that gives females two bites at the cherry in terms of having a, you know, because your two X chromosomes are different. So you've just got more variation there, more mm. possibility of being able to cover more bases. And that's why, unfortunately, in things like COVID, more males died than females because just the immune system response is stronger in females. It's it's not particularly pleasing. It's also why females tend to be more likely to, much more likely to suffer from immune response diseases you know things like lupus or yeah. myasthenia gravis where your immune system goes wrong and get big and start to attack the body much more common in females for the same reason however what this means is to go back to your point females tend to be more long-lived and that's one of the reasons so if you want to take advantage of those long-lived females again and you don't want them to be encumbered by infants and also of course childbirth is much much more dangerous for human females than it is for any other mammal mm. the menopause starts to make sense if you want people around who know what to do when the crops fail, who know what to do when the weather changes, who know where where water could be found. 
then unfortunately, if there has to be a choice, it's the human females that you would want to make sure around because they will live for longer. Possibly also they know about childbirth. And yeah. that, which is extremely dangerous still for human mm. females. So if you've got older females around, not occupied with their own children, they can really help out with working out how that goes. Almost certainly for humans, the first medical professionals would have been midwives because childbirth is so dangerous for human females. This is so interesting, Sophie. None of this is in my book, you know, None of it, not one bit of it. You'll be horribly disappointed. <laughs> there is interesting stuff in your book. I have one last question for you, Sophie. I could talk to about this all day. We have a lot of conversations about, you know, our mental health and looking after our mental health. I wonder, is there things that we can be doing to look after our brain's physical health? The two main things that you can do are, first of all, be reasonably active. Don't go mad. I'm not saying, like, run a marathon. <laughs> Remember, your brain's using up 20% of the available oxygen in your body at any point in time so your brain's incredibly dependent on your cardiovascular system that's your heart and your lungs and the blood vessels that move everything around your body if something goes wrong with that then your brain's one of the first things to to suffer from that because it requires your blood delivering all this oxygen to it bringing all these nutrients to it so when you are out of oxygen it's your brain that suffers first your stomach's fine for ages you know i'm exaggerating but that's that yeah. that that is it matters it matters that distinction matters so any activity anything that will improve your cardiovascular fitness will have positive knock-on effects on the health of your brain and one of the main things that we've learned about dementia generally is that while it's not given that being fit will mean you never get dementia but you are statistically less likely to develop dementia if you have a healthier cardiovascular system it's awful that we think about the exercises being about sport and winning things mm. think about being a bit active as being a brain hack yeah. that will improve your mood in the moment but it's actually really good for your brain's function in the long term and you know it's important to think about we're all aging you can take preventative steps now to have a healthier old age later on. That really matters. And the other thing that really matters is actually maintaining your social networks and keeping talking to people. The single biggest preventable risk factor for dementia is losing your hearing in adulthood and not getting hearing aids fitted. And it's not because there's some link between your ear and your brain, although there are. It's because if people don't use a hearing aid and they have difficulty hearing what people say, they stop talking to people. They stop doing activities. They stop going to the pub. They stop going to social groups and they withdraw. And that's terrible for your brain. Mm. The size and the strength of your social network predicts things like your mental health, your physical health, even how long you'll live. But actually, it also is really good for your brain. So anything that you can do to keep talking to people to keep socially engaged that's one of the best things that you can do for your brain and it's it's difficult you know we there is a stigma around using hearing aids i got a hearing aid recently they aren't the magical cure that you no, think they're going to be they're quite hard to get used to you you've got to get used to them haven't you but yes if i want to fully participate in society i need to be able to hear what's going on so i would recommend it that everyone take that advice from you yeah it's really worth taking it seriously because it is like you say it we're not very good with this. We they're not like putting on glasses, yeah, <laughs> and um, and we sort of think that they should be, and we, we're not good at expressing that to people. And again, we should think of it as a don't think of it as a something with a stigma. Think about it as a, like this is an amazing brain hack. Yeah. Great answer, Sophie. This has been brilliant. 
Thank you. The Brain, 10 Things You Should Know, is out now. Excellent. Yes, do buy my book. Thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by Leonie Pryor, one of the match official developers at the Rugby Football Union. Hello, Leonie. How are you doing? Hi, Jen. Yeah, good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We are here today to talk about the Inspire campaign. Or is it hashtag Inspire? It's aimed at bringing more female referees into the game of rugby. So, Leonie, I wondered if, just to start us off, if you could tell me a little bit more about the Inspire campaign. The main aim of the campaign is to take the existing female match officials from across the game at all levels uh, and across the country and showcase them to the masses at the home ground of Twickenham at a men's international fixture, so at the England-Japan game on the 12th of November. So we're going to get them out as flag bearers, so they'll be on the pitch, on the TV and stuff as well during the national anthems. We have an existing campaign, uh, which is hashtag see it, be it, ref it, which is, is basically in order to be able to think you're capable of doing something, it's easier if you can see someone else that looks like you or um, from the same sort of background, it's much easier to see yourself doing it if you can place yourself like that. So we've got a massive range of female match officials, as I say, from across the game, but all age groups uh, and from all over the country. So that's really exciting. You're trying to increase the number of referees to 500. Is that right? Yes. By the World Cup 25. By the time we're hosting the Women's World Cup, we'd like to have at least 500 female referees in England. Within referee societies, we have active female match officials that we can monitor. But outside of that, um, so people that might be refereeing in a school environment or a rugby club environment, um, we haven't necessarily got a way of seeing what their activity is. So we definitely know that the percentage of female match officials out there doesn't replicate uh, anywhere near the number of male match officials, even if you look at it as a percentage against the number of players. And of course, the women's game is growing exponentially at the moment. So we'd like to jump on that and at least make it a little bit more as a general representation of the population and the rugby population. What is it about refereeing? Why do we need more women in refereeing roles other than just for the purposes of general equality? It's a wasted opportunity not to have them involved. So from their own personal point of view, they don't know what they're missing out on. Also, it's a way for people to stay involved in the sport. So perhaps they've played rugby or they've coached rugby or they turn up every weekend taking the kids to rugby and stand on the sidelines getting cold and they don't actually realise that they could be so much more involved in facilitating that rugby at all levels and staying involved in the sport, you know, keeping it going. Uh, it's great for fitness. It's, of course, that has links with, with mental health, but actually management of day-to-day in terms of the skills that you can learn. And that's, again, across any age group. So I work with some young match officials and I've seen them really develop and grow and they take new management skills into their daily lives. So there's a load of different reasons why people do it and... The main reason why they should do it is probably because they don't know what they're missing out on. So what kind of barriers do you think that women face in terms of getting involved in in refereeing? What is it that's preventing them from doing it other than a feeling that maybe the world of sport is not a welcoming one to them? 
Uh, I think not realising what they're capable of because they haven't pushed themselves out of their own comfort zone. But I do tend to compare it to the reaction you would get if you asked someone if they fancied going skydiving. They would go, oh, no, I can't do that. And that's that's the reaction when you get chatting to people at a rugby game after it after they've seen you refing a game and you say, oh, yeah, well, have you ever thought about doing it? Oh, no, no, I can't do that. I couldn't do that. So I think it, it's their own mental blocker is the first thing. In terms of the steps to getting started, we would sign people to our Keep Your Boots On website. Uh, so that has loads of information about getting started, extra networks that we run uh, at England Rugby for female match officials so that they can feel like they're part of a community. Uh, and and getting booked on a course and getting going. And we ran some introduction to refereeing courses this year for, for the first time, and 25% of the people on those were female, which is a massive, massive uh, improvement in terms of the numbers that we've had in the past. It's just been announced that three women referees will be officiating at the World Cup in Qatar, the Football World Cup, that is, this November which is, I believe, the first time that female referees have taken full charge, as it were, of a game at the World Cup. I wondered how this compares with rugby. Do you have female referees at that sort of top elite level in in men's rugby as well? Yeah, absolutely. So Holly Davidson was in the middle uh, of a a men's international fixture. Uh, Sarah Cox officiates in the Premiership, in the English Premiership, which is some of the best rugby in the world. You know, those are trailblazers. Those female match officials are at the top end of the game, which is absolutely fantastic and has a huge impact across the world, really. It's amazing to have those, but it's also amazing to recognise the volunteers across the sport. And actually, although those are amazing and inspirational, they are the tiny, tiny percentage at the top. And it's brilliant for people to think, I want to be there one day. And certainly for younger female match officials, you know, it, it's brilliant to have those role models. I think, though, that to celebrate the, the match officials across the board, we need to look at the ones that are at the grassroots level of the game, because that's where the majority of players are, as the, where the majority of the sport happens. And that's what's feeding into the, the top end of the sport all the time. So, there's another female match official springs to mind who played rugby at university 20 years ago, had a break, had kids, had you know plenty of time out and then has recently got back into officiating and she's absolutely loving it. And there's all sorts of different stories from her to a female match official that's picked up the whistle at 15 because a boy in school said girls can't ref <laughs> and she never even played rugby and now she referees senior men's rugby as well so then she's doing you know kids and women's rugby as well but I think it's brilliant for somebody who's never been involved in the sport before to step into it and and learn and I think that's probably the biggest myth busting tip I can give is actually a, you don't have to have been involved in it before and there is a level of the game for everyone. I don't know if you remember this I think it was in the news like a year two years ago there was a male referee in the Premier League now, I cannot remember which one it was, but it was one of the more well-known male referees in the Premier League who made some comments in the press. The comments he made were jumped on, and I think in a slightly harsh way. I actually don't think he meant to be misogynistic. I think I think he was trying to be sympathetic to women. Anyway, he said that refereeing presents like a bit of a dilemma for women because 
he said, it's hard for women to reach the fitness standards required of them for the men's game. Because obviously, if you're a referee, you do have to be pretty fit. There's a lot of running around. So he said one of the problems was because women take time out for maternity leave, obviously. And as I can testify, having a baby can have, you know, an impact on your fitness levels. He was saying that that can have an impact on fitness levels and then it is hard for women to kind of get back to the level of fitness required of them to officiate in the men's game. I wondered, from your perspective as someone who oversees refereeing in in rugby, is there any truth in this? Do you think that it is harder for women to, to meet the fitness standards for a men's game? And I wondered... Then in that case, what about the women's game? Because obviously there's a massive rise in of popularity in women's rugby at the moment. Do you have more men refereeing in women's rugby as well? Or are there more women coming through there? Is is that like an easier place for women to referee? In terms of fitness testing, at the community level of the game, that is optional because referees at all community levels are volunteers. Mm-hmm. So it's you do it for the enjoyment of it and you, you get given a bit of food and drink at the club you go to and hopefully a nice warm welcome, which you do most of the time, which is lovely, and a bit of petrol money. So that's what we're doing it for. And if you choose to put yourself through fitness tests and you meet the requirements, then it's that little bit of peace of mind that you've passed that benchmark and you're fit for purpose, mm-hmm. whether that's men's game women's game age grade rugby I I think uh, fitness is certainly an important aspect of it there is a referee who describes rugby refereeing as running a marathon whilst playing a game of chess so if you're not out of breath when you're when you get there you can focus more on making the right decisions so I think the relevant fitness level is important for the level of the game that you're officiating at if you choose to go into national league rugby then there is compulsory fitness testing. At the RFU, uh, we put refs through their paces with something called the Bronco test, which I've had to do. And uh, I won't lie, it's not the most pleasant. Because <laughs> um, if you try hard enough, you can usually taste blood. So it's um, yeah, it's definitely quite a, a grueling thing, but that's only based on you really, really pushing yourself. And in that testing, uh, there is a, a set benchmark uh, for men and there's a different benchmark for women the only reason being it's a measure of your vo2 max so physiologically women are different Uh, that test has been put together with all the science behind it and uh, professionals in fitness and strength and conditioning areas so they've they've determined what you have to hit and if you want to referee at that level you have to hit those requirements so whatever age you are or whether you've come back from having children or you know you could have a male referee coming back from an injury or a knee operation mm, yeah, or something course, like that. Yeah. they still have to work to get that mm-hmm. fitness level up to those requirements but as I say it's not compulsory at the community game a lot of referee societies which is like a club for referees in each area of the country they'll offer it as an option for people to go and give it a go I personally choose to do it because I'd like to know that I'm hitting those fitness requirements because I am um, refereeing at a higher level mm-hmm. of the game. And I'm pretty competitive, so I quite <laughs> like to try and hit the men's benchmark rather than the women's one. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Obviously, we see in men's football that female referees do tend to get 
a bit of abuse, shall we say, from spectators. I wondered how that compares in rugby. Is that like something you think that is kind of across the board in sport or do you think that is a problem that, that seems more prevalent in football than perhaps it does in rugby? Certainly my perception is that it, it's pretty bad in football and I look at football referees and think, oh, I don't know why they do it because there's not enough money in the world that would make me want to do that yet. As I say, I go out from a bit of petrol money each week and have a lovely weekend running around rugby pitches. You know, match official abuse does exist. I would say it's much, much rarer in rugby. It's And actually, the, the RFU take a zero-tolerance approach on it. So it's easily reportable if on the odd occasion that does happen. And it's usually, I think, people getting frustrated at decisions and the referee as a role rather than the referee as a person so I've got quite a few ideas around trying to humanize referees more whether it be a male female young older whatever and I think it's important to separate that role out and look that that's just still a human being in the middle and we shouldn't actually be treating them like that I would really hope it wouldn't put people off because I think they might see somebody getting a bit animated on a touchline at a kid's football game and automatically assume that that goes on. And it's not acceptable behaviour and we don't accept it in rugby. One of the things that I hate to see in a game of football is when all the players get around the referee whining in their face about a decision that's been made. It irritates me. I like a rule. I, I, <laughs> I like to see the enforcement of a rule. It makes me feel safe. It, it just makes the whole role kind of redundant, doesn't it? If, you know, if you're then going to appeal against a decision. I like to see a referee have some authority in a game, basically. Do you have that kind of stuff in rugby as well? Does that go on or is it, again, to a much lesser degree? I think we clamp down on it in rugby. I mean, we've got the, the sport's core values. Mm. Um, respect is one of those those key ones. And th- that is kind of at the heart of the game. So usually you can just remind players of that. And actually, if they appeal, which is, you know, something like just throwing their hands up in protest, that warrants a penalty. Mm. So it's interesting. As soon as you blow your whistle and they get marched back 10 metres the peer pressure they will get from their teammates generally puts them back in check more so even than the referees. So just that action of penalizing the team for something, which, you know, it might be them muttering something under their breath. It might be them, you know, calling another player a name that's, you know, not appropriate. There's all sorts of examples, but certainly anything that leads to that, you know, goading or appealing or over-questioning of a, a referee's decisions or authority warrants marching the back. And, and that tends to nip it in the bud. And you tend to find, actually, that it's often younger male players pumped up with a bit of testosterone mm. that don't quite know the consequences of their actions that need to just keep it in check early on, and then, then they're fine. They just need boundaries and to know where they stand. But that would be very rare to see something like that in in rugby, I would say, in comparison to football. And I've seen them, footballers, like, they they go and eyeball the referee, Mm. don't they? And they're all in their face and things. And that's, yeah, it's not on. It's not nice to see. I, I, I really don't enjoy it in football. 
anyway, the RFU is going to be showcasing its female referees at the England v Japan match at Twickenham on November the 12th. Where can we watch the match if we want to see all of this going on and how can we stay up to date with the campaign? It'll be on Amazon Prime. That particular game will be shown on Amazon Prime. So look out for our flag bearers that are all going to be in matching stash. And then we're going to document the whole day from start to finish and release that on our social media. But leading up to the event, if you want to find out more about some of our female match officials, we're doing a 50-day countdown on ruck.co.uk where each one's got a profile. So those are being updated every single day. And there's a little video profile, like in a, a yearbook style, and each one's little story. If you want to check out our social media, it's at RFU underscore refs. Brilliant. Okay. Leone, thank you so much for joining me and all the best with the campaign. Thank you. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, which film that we watched this week meant that I basically stifled sobs for an hour and a half? This week we watched Welcome to Sarajevo, Michael Winterbottom's absolutely furious fourth film, which was released this month in 1997. It's set during the siege of the city that is now the capital of Bosnia and Herzegovina, a siege that lasted from April 1992 to February 1996, making it the longest in modern warfare. Shot in the ruined city just six weeks after the Dayton Agreement brought an end to the Bosnian Wars, aside from its stars, almost everybody else is played by locals, including 10-year-old Amira Nusevic, who wasn't an actress, but given she lived through the 1,425-day siege, I'm not sure she needed to be. It was written by Frank Cottrell Boyce, a long-time Winterbottom collaborator, as well as a co-creator, along with Danny Boyle, of the 2012 Olympic opening ceremony, and is partly based on the non-fiction book Natasha's Story by the British journalist Michael Nicholson, which recounts his snap decision to smuggle a Bosnian girl out of the country early on in the conflict. Winterbottom and Stephen Delane, who plays a fictionalised version of Nicholson here, both talked at the time about their reluctance to make the tribulations of a British reporter the central focus of the film. So while it draws on Nicholson's book, it widens out to show more of the war, making liberal use of footage shot by real-life ITN crews. Nicholson is renamed Henderson and played with the mixture of grumpiness and deadpan that made Delane so watchable in Game of Thrones. Mm. He's part of an ITN crew holed up in the Sarajevo Holiday Inn, drinking excessively and documenting man's inhumanity to man. With him are his cameraman, Greg, who's played by James Nesbitt, his producer, Jane, that's Kerry Fox, and his driver slash translator, Risto, played by Goran Viznich, who was himself in the Croatian army during the Yugoslavian wars and who springboarded straight from this film to be George Clooney's replacement in ER. Also in the mix are freelance reporter Annie, played by Emily Lloyd, who is about to uncover the biggest story of the war, and Flynn, a big-name American war correspondent, who is three parts bonhomie and one part ruthless cynicism, a role Woody Harrelson was born to play. And lucky for us, (laughs) he does. Disillusionment sets in when it becomes clear the rest of the world, politicians and Joe Public alike, just aren't interested in the humanitarian crisis unfolding in the city. 
So when Henderson finds hundreds of children living in an orphanage on the front line and an American aid worker, played by Marissa Tamai, arranges to evacuate some of the babies, he makes a spontaneous decision to take an older child, Amira, with him, only telling his wife, Helen, that's Juliet Aubrey, after they reach Croatia. So, let's talk about the reviews. Well, on this side of the Atlantic, critics, for the most part, liked it. Empire gave it four out of five stars, it competed for the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and it even received a positive response in Bosnia. America, however, was a different story, Mm. and that may explain why it didn't do good box office. I think part of the issue was the American distributor promoted it as a Woody Harrelson film. (laughs) Its US trailer and poster certainly suggest as much. In fact, its Wikipedia page still does much the same. To discover it was mostly emotionally repressed Brits having moral debates about journalism may well have been a disappointment. But I think it's more than that, as almost every review I read, including Roger Ebert's, expressed two things. Firstly, a wish that the film had focused solely on Nicholson's book, I Roll. And secondly, what I believe to be a misunderstanding of a line spoken by Harrelson's Flynn. Quote, oddly enough, back home, no one's heard of Sarajevo and everyone's heard of me. So maybe we can discuss what we think he meant by that line in a bit. But first question, Mick. Tell me what parts of this film you remember being reported on our tellies in the UK. It's really interesting, isn't it? So in 1992, I was 15 and I thought I would remember more of the footage that is interwoven with the rest of the film. I thought I'd recognise some of the Mm. actual footage and I recognised very little, to the point where I wondered whether some of the footage that is interwoven wasn't shown on television but was recorded there. Because stuff like the shot of the dead babies Mm. and the shot that I think are clearly footage when they stumble into a street that has literally just been bombed and they are moving people whose feet are dangling off and bits of them are ripped open... And it looks like actual footage. But I don't think that was ever shown on our television. I certainly don't remember it. I sort of remember the whiz-bang booms of the war Mm. being reported. But I've got to be honest with you, very little of that seemed familiar to me. That's interesting. Do you remember the camps? Oh, actually, yes, you're absolutely right. I do remember the camps. And I remember the orphanages. So the Mm. camps and the orphanages which I guess are the more... I don't know, I was going to say, this film very much confused me, but the the visceral aspects of seeing people that close up who were that maltreated, that malnourished, and the kids in the orphanage. But that's that's not any more Mm. visceral than seeing people with bits of them blown off and dead bodies in the street as they drive past. But yeah, actually, I do remember the camps and the orphanages. I don't remember all of it, I do remember it, but I am a little bit older than you, and I think this happened at the age where that age difference would be the difference between me being an adult and you being a child Yeah, yeah. at that point. So, yeah, I was about 17 when all of this kicked off. I think that point you just made about the difference in our age, I think my mum would have turned that off. Mm. If we were watching the news and that I was there, I think she would have maybe turned it off. Yeah, that's why I suggested that Jen didn't watch it because I just thought dead babies and Jen are not going to go particularly well together but i I love dead babies as you know (laughs) (laughs) i think some of the most striking images are just simple things like the cars driving around 
and how fucking fast they had to drive and people just running, just running through the yeah. streets, just trying oh. to cross the road and running at full peg, absolutely everywhere. Nobody it's walks utterly in Sarajevo. heartbreaking. That yeah. t- total throwing up in the air of your life as you knew it, I think is consolidated in not being able to walk anywhere anymore. You just always have to run, crouch down, like clutching your baby, clutching your water and fucking hoping that that sniper isn't going to get you. That is utterly terrifying. And I think they capture that astonishingly. And maybe that's because it is the raw footage, but also when it is the characters. One of the most laudable things about this film, and I think there's loads to praise it for, but one of the most laudable things is its female characters. Women in this film get shit done. There are loads of them. They are running the whole show. They are breaking stories. They are running aid agencies. They are solo parenting while their husband's away at war. They are full on the women in this. Even Amira, I include Amira in this. Who Mm. saves Amira? Arguably, Amira saves herself. Huge props to Emily Lloyd's character. when She has that story which she says is going to be the biggest story of the war. And actually Henderson sort of dismisses her and is Mm. like, oh no, you need to talk to Jane about transport. He's not interested. He's so focused on his story about the kids. And Fair Do's is a really important story. And it's being knocked off the news front page, the headlines by the Duke and Duchess of York getting divorced. And he's quite rightly furious about that. So instead of sort of being cowed, by the man who is the man in this situation. Like, he is the journalist that the news is using to have this story on the airwaves. She isn't cowed. She just goes somewhere else because she really believes in that story. And I just thought that sort of determination and her willingness to get it done is incredible. And I loved it. And it is a huge story. And Mm. the fact that Flynn goes with her and he comes back, the quietest I think we see him in the film, is, is incredibly powerful. Yeah, and that's really interesting because there isn't a huge amount of emotion on display in this film, even though you just said that you cried most of the way through it. But there are two massive bursts of emotion, and one of them is to do with Flynn when he takes the photograph of the man he's found in a camp back to his father, and they're all full of the usual bonhomie, and then that guy just goes off on his own and has a cigarette and just starts sobbing, and it's really upsetting. And the second is when they walk into the flat and find Risto, and Kerry Fox, Fox's character loses her fucking mind. And you can see all of this stuff she's been repressing just comes out at that moment. But I think this is exactly what the film is brilliant at. So I, I felt very emotional watching it, not least because this has happened to people in our lifetime, but this is happening now. Yeah. I mean, there's those feelings of helplessness and hopelessness and what the fuck is wrong with human beings that we keep doing this. Like, what is so important that we treat each other so horrendously, so barbarically, so brutally? And that was my sobs and the fact that people who aren't on either side... so. You know, I read the reviews too, and Roger Ebert, for example, criticises it for not going into the whys and wheres of the war and who was killing who. Mm. And Empire criticises it for doing that a bit too much. And I'm like, for me, the point of the film is, it doesn't matter who started it, it doesn't matter who's in control at the moment. The civilians don't give a shit at this point. They're just under siege. And I think it does that brilliantly. That's a really good point, because we don't find out And this is a massive spoiler alert, so if you haven't watched it and you don't want to know, stop listening now. But we don't find out who shot Risto. Risto could have been killed by 
someone to do with the guy he killed. He could have been killed by somebody who resented him working with the media or he could have been killed by a stray bullet. But the end result is, it doesn't matter. He's dead. He's dead. That's what matters. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other question that it tackles and why there is so little emotion from the characters. I mean, it's there, but it's it's very British, isn't it? It's very like pushed down. Put it in your Tupperware box. Eat your Tupperware box. Never open it. (laughs) It's because how removed do you have to be to go and report on that? How do you keep yourself safe mentally and physically and report on that so that the world knows what's happening. And it's a big question that I ask myself in nature programs and, mm. and on war reporters and war correspondents is, how can you not help? Like, how are you going to let that defenseless creature get eaten? Yeah. Or like, it's clearly injured. Can we not rescue that one? Or why would you not step in in the way that Woody Harlson's character, Flynn, does step in? But the fine line is there for a reason. And that's so that it can be reported accurately. And I think it... It discusses that and explores that really well so that when we do get those outbursts of emotion, they are even more powerful because you're like, of course they can't be untouched by this. Of course they can't. It says some really interesting stuff about journalism and a lot of the issues they discuss 25 years later, we still haven't got answers to them, but Mm -hmm. I think it's because there are no answers. I genuinely think that they are intractable questions that thing that Woody Harrelson does where he intervenes that's made up within the context of this film mm-hmm. however it does happen there's quite a famous photograph of Don McCullen the war reporter yes, carrying yeah. an old lady running carrying an old lady because he'd put his camera down to go and intervene and somebody yeah. else had caught the shot of him yeah it does happen then they have the conversation about you know what's the difference between public awareness and a campaign she says to him that's not news that's a campaign if you want to get those kids out Mm -hmm. there's loads of questions but going back to that point because i think it's really interesting almost universally all americans took that line back home no one's heard of sarajevo and everyone's heard of me as a personality trait on display that he's arrogant that he's cocky that he's those things And I would perceive that as being totally incorrect because Mm -hmm. he doesn't say it out of the blue. He says it within a context of the conversation. Emily Lloyd's character says to him, this should be about Sarajevo and you've made it about you. To which he responds, oddly enough, back what he's saying there is, if I don't do this, they're not going to put it on the telly. That piece of footage that he's done has sold all over the world. Suddenly, everybody's really interested because the journalist has put himself in harm's way. And his argument is, if that's what it takes... To get, to get people interested. And I, I just think it's a really... I'm glad you agree with me on that because I just think it's a really poor misreading of that line. I absolutely agree with you and I had a lot of sympathy for, for Flynn's character doing that because it is brave. It, is, it really is brave. That opening scene where we're with the women getting ready for the wedding and then she goes outside and the mother of the bride is just shot on the street. She's just dead. And then there's chaos because there's snipers. And so... Flynn puts himself in danger because no one knows where those shots are coming from. It's not like a guarantee, like he's thought, oh, I kind of I know how to get around this. It is mm. genuinely, he puts himself in the frame so that people across the globe will see how dangerous that danger is instead of just dismissing it. And it is that trait of humanity that we need someone that maybe we can recognise before we understand what's going on in a situation. Mm. And he's recognisable. And also, I do think that a lot of people struggle with how journalists, how war correspondents, how nature correspondents can see someone in trouble and not intervene. Mm. And of course, it's the Don McCullen story. As soon as you put your camera down to intervene, 
no one is recording this anymore so the world doesn't get to see it is such a weird moral dilemma mm. and by choosing their career and being so good at their career they opt for a side of it that a lot of people don't understand and actually Flynn manages to straddle both of those sides Agreed. I think Woody Harrelson's fantastic in this. I think he's amazing. I think that all of the performances are absolutely extraordinary. Because equally, they aren't scared to show them as being, you know, a bit of a dick. Because I actually think to survive through that, your personality changes. In fact, there's two, there's two really interesting scenes when Henderson comes back after he's been away and he comes mm. back and things have changed and there's two scenes and it's interesting because I find the the second one more upsetting even though technically the first one should be he has a conversation with Risto and Risto tells him he's killed someone mm. and then he says it wasn't that bad actually in fact it was kind of therapeutic yeah. and it's really horrifying to think that you would see killing someone as therapeutic and then they have a conversation with Risto's friend who's talking about buying a woman for a bar of soap Oh. And actually, I find that more upsetting conversation, yeah. and I shouldn't, but I did. I think also because we're supposed to see that guy as a good guy, and there he is going, well, actually, I'm yeah. just going to, there's this woman I've always wanted who doesn't want me, so I'm going to wait till she is on her knees in need and yeah. buy her for a bar of soap. Oh, but you're not have, a good guy. They have started to break down as people. They have started to exist outside the boundaries of, of what you thought when you first met them as characters that they were. Agreed. And actually, what's really interesting in Welcome to Sarajevo is I think the female characters are sturdier, mm. hardier than the male characters. Henderson and Flynn are much more vulnerable to what's going on than Jane seems to be. Yeah. Jane is there to do a job. And so, again, when she does break down, when they find Risto and she howls, it feels like all of that stuff she has had to tamp down about the whole of the war, about the mm. whole of the stuff that they are seeing comes flooding out. Yeah. Normally I ask people if they like stuff at the top, but I didn't this time. So, because <laughs> like is such a difficult word, but Mickey, was it good? Would you recommend it to people? It's an incredible film. I cannot think of a time where I would choose to watch it. It is so harrowing, but it is so important. And therefore I think everyone should watch it because it is a real... I'm using that word again, a visceral look at what war fucking means on the ground. Mm. And it's so powerful that you'd hope it would, if anyone was like, oh, they just happened, that it would actually change their mind and make them, I don't know, it, it also has feelings of hopelessness and helplessness because there's not very much we can do about what other people decide is going to happen to a, a civilization, but would get you really fired up. But it's so harrowing. I mean, I'm, I'm probably never going to watch it again, but it is, that doesn't mean it is not an absolutely incredible film. Yeah, I agree. I think it's fantastic. Outside of all of that, as I mean, it's, it, I think it, it kind of looks beautiful in an ugly way where that guy's chasing them up the road naked behind on the bus that is just yeah. like wowzers. And you can hear the kids sort of giggling a little bit because kids would because that's of like course. the man with his willy out. Yeah. Yeah, I think everyone's really good. I think Stephen Delane is... is I mean, this is what he does really well, that mix of deadpan and grumpy. That is his definitely his wheelhouse. Is he Stannis in Game of Thrones? He is Stannis in Game of okay. Thrones, yeah. I would also say that when you described it to me and you're like, oh, it's got some of the actual footage melded into the film, you could be like, oh, that's going to be jarring. But it is so seamless. Yeah. It's so beautifully done. You can tell when it's the footage that ITN were filming in 92, but it 
it never jars, apart from the fact what it's recording is fucking horrible and jarring. But the actual footage itself just melds so seamlessly into the film and into the plot and into the narrative and with the characters. It's it's so beautifully done. Agreed. Going back to what you said about the intro, I think the intro is incredible because it starts off with mm. shots from what Sarajevo was most famous for before all of this started, the Winter Olympics 1984. Yeah. starts off with yeah. Torval and Dean yeah. and uh, the way young lovers do. And then it just transitions straight in and then you get that massive punch in the face of those days are gone. That yeah. is over. This is a new time. There is optimism now. There's not in this film. There is optimism now for Sarajevo, which is great. Yeah, I would also add the choice of music is brilliant. Mm. It's all very upbeat stuff. So we've got like, don't worry, be happy. We've got shine on. Yeah, It's the backdrop to these scenes of brutality and carnage. And again, it sounds like that could be quite trite, but it absolutely works. I mean, that is borrowed, I think, as a trick from um, Good Morning Vietnam when they mm. use... Um, Fucking love that what film. What do they use in that? It's a wonderful world while all of that chaos is going on. But yeah. yeah. So... Yes. Rated or dated? Rated. Yeah, me too. Absolutely rated. I do think everyone should watch it, you know, tissues and prepare for a very harrowing experience. Yeah. Will I feel the same about next week's film? I don't know. (laughs) Jen is taking us back in time to the 80s to watch because it is the week of International Men's Day. Three men and a baby. Selleck. Gutenberg. (laughs) Who's the other one? Danson. Danson. Selleck, Guttenberg and Danson. And a baby. (gasps) Wow. Polarity ensues. Let's find out. (laughs) Standard issue for all women.